Welcome back to Brandon Wilborn's Fantasy Fiction, where fans of classic fantasy adventures can hear the serialized audiobooks of a fellow nerd and indie author completely for free. I'm your author, narrator, and host, Brandon Wilborn. Thanks for listening today. The story portion of this episode starts right at about the minute mark. Last time in the Treasure of Capric, the monks reached the king's camp and began treating Curian. Fallon searched the crags of the wild goats, and Curian woke to a voice calling him into the wilderness. This week I'll be reading from chapter 21. I'm, I'm really glad to be back after a couple of mishaps kept me from releasing some episodes last week, or the last couple of weeks. But uh, this week, after the reading, I don't have any behind-the-scenes or behind-the-keyboard content to share right now, but I will share one of my favorite things about this chapter just real quick. So stick around for that. Now I present for your enjoyment The Treasure of Cabric. Chapter 21 Revelations Tobin woke to Reese shaking him. Light filtered in through the open shutters, telling him it was already past dawn. Reese held his staff as if ready for danger. Oh, what is it? he asked. Reese pointed to Curian's empty bed. He's gone, and everybody in the house is dead asleep. Tobin jumped up from the chair, instantly alert. He touched the blankets on the bed for a moment. Cold. Then he scanned the room for anything out of place. Curian's clothes were missing, but nothing else. His staff was still propped in the corner with Tobin's own. Maybe he's feeling better? Reese asked hopefully. Tobin frowned, shrugged his shoulders, and walked to the next room, where Reese and Noman had slept. The dean still sprawled on a bed, snoring heavily. Next, he moved across the hallway and opened the door of Carissa's room enough to peek inside. She, too, breathed steadily in her bed. They won't know what happened to him he said, turning to Reese. Then he hurried down the hallway and stepped out into the camp. He hoped deeply that he would see Curian sitting with Louise next to a fire, but he didn't believe that would happen. Outside, the heavy rain had lifted, but a gentle mist continued to fall. Smoke from cooking fires immediately hit his nose, followed by the scent of breakfast. Xander was already walking toward the house and called out a greeting. Tobin knew already he had nothing to do with Curian's disappearance. There was no feigned innocence in the greeting. Curian's missing, he said. All of us stepped right through whatever happened to him. Xander lifted the corners of his mouth as if he were speaking to rambunctious children. The answer to his location is simple. He was summoned. How do you know that? Reese asked. The signpost, as he liked to call himself, merely pointed through camp to the eastern sky where a thick shaft of smoke rose straight up from the canyons. It appeared to have no interference from the wind and simply disappeared into the blanket of clouds. Reese immediately jogged a few steps in that direction before Xander called him back. I'm going to see my brother, he said. You can't stop me. Xander shook his head. You have not yet been called, he said sternly. Reese whirled on Xander, pushing him in the chest with his staff. Brother Brock, Noman shouted, stepping from the house. As if it triggered a primal response, Reese lowered his staff and turned to his teacher. The struggle for control rolled across his face like a tremor in the earth. I do not believe Kurian is in danger, Noman said calmly. And we gain nothing by fighting them, do we? 
His pupil violently shook his head while looking at the ground. I'm sorry, Reese said to his feet. We've just been through so much, and I panicked. When can we see him? Tobin asked. When you are called, or he returns, Xander said as if it were obvious, and then he breathed deeply. He smiled at Reese, everything forgiven. Now, I had intended to invite you for breakfast, but if you would prefer, I can have something sent to you in the healing house. Thank you, Noman said. I think we would prefer to be alone for the moment. The dean bowed deeply and shepherded the young monks back toward the house with a hand on each of their backs. Do you really think Corian is safe? said Tobin. I do, Noman replied. Didn't the healer say that only their leader could heal him? She did. However, I assumed he would come to us. Nothing about our experience tells me that Xander or the other men bear us ill will. I trust Kurian is where he must be. But you fought with him the entire way here, Reese said. His tone suggested he was complaining about being scolded. We had our discussions. I may have been frustrated with him. However, he is an exceedingly wise man. More than that, he is a man of peace. Each of his antagonizations was ultimately for my good. The dean looked back over his shoulder at the retreating figure of Xander. In other circumstances, he would have made a fine sage for our order. We could have been great friends. Tobin saw the grief on his face and knew the dean thought of Sage Martin and the fight they had before his death. The dean's words were shocking in the extreme. However, before he could ponder them, Louise trotted up from behind and entered the house with them. She beamed. I heard Curian went to the king, she said. It's wonderful. I told you everything would be all right. You might have come a bit sooner, Reese blurted, before I almost took off Xander's head. Tobin nearly laughed. He knew Reese would be cross the rest of the morning, but would only mention all the wrong reasons. Do you know when we can see him? He asked her. You get your turn. Be patient. Reese and Louise sat on Curian's bed while Noman sat in the only chair. Tobin couldn't help but notice the similarity to their placement on the first day they met her, except that Curian was absent, and this time they were companions in hope instead of adversaries. Carissa suddenly stepped into the room, bleary-eyed and wobbly, as if she had just woken from a deep sleep. She let out a squeak and her ample arms flapped about as she stretched. Morning, darlings. What did I miss? Curian heard a man singing. He didn't know the language, but it was a strong, pleasant voice. The song tugged at his heart in a way he could not explain. It made him want to give himself over to a cathartic weeping that promised to soothe the pains of the past month and those before. Then he opened his eyes and again found himself in a small room. This one looked like a cave, but the light was so bright he could barely tolerate looking around. He thought it might be the same effect from the hasselfish poison, so he rubbed his eyes. When he opened them again, they were beginning to adjust to the light. He lay in a bed again. It was indeed a small cave. There was one exit that opened into a dark passage. Candles stood around the room in nooks and on natural rock shelves, and a good-sized fire burned in the middle of the floor, 
its smoke disappearing through a hole in the ceiling. Across the room the singing man faced away from him and stood over a small high table like a reading stand. It held a candelabrum on either end. The peculiar thing was that the brightness in the room came not from the candles or the fire, but from the man. It was pure white, and so dazzling that he wished he could gaze for hours at that light, but it was also painful and frightening. When he blinked there were rays of other colors of light blazing from the source. He wondered how long he could live if the poison were so strong. The man stopped singing and spoke, still facing the table. You have woken early. How long have I been asleep? Curian asked, stifling a yawn from habit. His voice felt rough from disuse. Perhaps an hour, the man said. His voice still carried the hint of a song as he worked with unseen things at the table. For many hours before, you were beyond sleep. However, I did not expect you to rise until late this evening, and it is still before the midday meal. Turian's head was foggy. He was not certain he understood everything the man said. He only knew he had the feeling of having taken a long journey and finally arriving at his destination. Or did it feel like he had returned home? In either case, he felt he could finally rest. Part of him wanted to fall back in the bed and sleep until the man expected him to wake. But suddenly there was an urgency to complete his business here. How are you feeling? the man asked and then faced him. When he turned around, the light seemed magnified. It poured forth from his face like the heat from the fire, blinding and beautiful. Curian squinted, holding up a hand to shield his face from the glow. As he raised his arm, he noticed that the pain from his wounds was almost gone. The poison has done something to my eyes. Was it the poison or something else? Some get a glimpse behind the veil after an experience like yours. The man stepped around the fire and cupped a hand over Curian's eyes. He muttered something under his breath, and when he pulled the hand away, the light returned to that of a normal, fire-lit cave. The glorious figure had disappeared. Standing before him was a man wearing simple clothing with no distinctive ornamentation. There were no weapons on display, and he looked the part of a farmer or tradesman rather than a bandit lord. The hint of a smile played constantly on his lips, as if he might laugh at any moment. He wore a short, dark beard with neatly trimmed hair, more akin to Alden the flute player than the wild man Gideon, yet somehow both men followed him. When Curian looked into his brown eyes, the piercing gaze stunned him, and there he saw the same intensity that Gideon had shown. He could keep no secrets from those eyes. He stared in silence for a moment, recognition dawning on him, and then found the courage to speak. You're the man I met at our compound, he whispered. The day Evasius first attacked. You asked me about our history. I'm glad you recognize me. It means I chose well. The king sat down on the floor next to the bed, his arm resting on one upright knee. His posture was one of complete confidence and relaxation. As in their first meeting, he exuded signs of both vivacious youth and the experience of many years. This time, Curian got the impression that he was enjoying himself, even that he liked Curian's company. What do you mean you chose well? You may think you came here for the treasure of Capric, but you are here because I called you. 
You are the king of the caves, then? He nodded. I have many names. That one is common for the moment. He lifted his hands and glanced toward the ceiling. The reason should be obvious. I came because you stole our treasure, Kurian said, and because a prophet told our abbot we had to leave. He was beginning to feel bolder now that he met the man. The king seemed less like the terrifying raider of caravans the more that they spoke, more like the man Louise described. He almost added, God sent us on this quest, but his recent doubts made him hold back. Yes, said the king, and the smile faded into an expression of grief. It saddened me to see St. Martin so fearful. It was too easy to convince him of the necessity. Still, we barely got you out in time. Curian's mouth opened and his eyes bulged. You're saying you were the prophet? You showed that terrible vision to the abbot? What I showed your abbot was exactly what Lord Evasius did. And you've also healed my wounds. How did you do these things? If this is all magic, I've seen that evil from Evasius's witches. Curian spoke with more bravado than he intended. Yet in the thousand times he had rehearsed this conversation, that had always been the attitude he imagined. Show no fear. Demand what was yours. Fight if necessary. In the face of this quiet man with healing hands, it was an unnecessary facade. He cleared his throat and asked less accusingly, Are you some sort of wizard? Nothing so simple. The king rose and stepped back to the table where Curian now saw there was a large book. It was bound in dark leather. Along the raised bands of the spine and on the corners, it had worn to dusty tan. It was a book like any other that Curian had studied at the monastery, except perhaps older. The king laid his fingers gently on the cover. The room felt suddenly charged, as if the lights from the night before were surging through Curian's nerves. The prophecy which I gave to Sage Martin was part of something larger, something he should have known, said the king. Then he lifted his head and spoke in such a way that his voice reverberated in the cave like the sound of many voices speaking as one. It was terrible and glorious at once. Those walking in darkness will see a great light. Release the deer, the brute, even the princely sun. On those living in the land of shadow a light will dawn. The moon will shine like the sun, and the light of the sun will be as seven days. Rivers will open on the bare heights, and the dry land will spout fountains of water. Fragrant and fruited trees will spring from barren wilderness. Wild beasts will no longer threaten the pastures. The people will rejoice, and justice will reign when the king returns to the shadowed lands, and the waters of Apos flow again. Curian was silent for a few moments. The words struck something in him. They felt like old words, like those from Finn, and they brought to mind his vows. They spoke of the desire every one of his brothers had shared, the return of the kings, the restoration of Finn, of knowledge and peace, and the blessings of God. Again, he wanted to weep. Except this time, he wanted to throw himself at the feet of this man whose voice threatened to unravel his soul. He wanted to beg him to illuminate these words, to explain all that had happened, 
and offer him some glimmer of hope. If this short lyric was from the treasure, he wanted more, and something told him the king of the caves could give it to him. He searched his mind for a wise question, something worthy of the answers he sought, but he could not break through the storm of thoughts that raged in his mind. I thought that was only a joke with the townspeople, he said, a saying about things that would never happen when the apples flowed or when the king returned. He knew it was trivial and foolish before it left his lips, but it was the only thought clear enough to speak. It is a memory so old they have forgotten what it meant, the king said solemnly, and so it became a joke for fools, as do many mysteries. The king picked up the book and turned to face Curian. Is that it? Our treasure? His voice shook, and he felt as if he was atop a great cliff, looking over the edge. The air felt thick, as if his past were in the room with them, his entire life whirling around this moment. There was the most intense sense of expectation he had ever felt, mixed with fear. And then, surging to the forefront like a lion leaping from the shadows, reverence. The vertigo washed away, and all his focus bent sharply onto the book. Had they really come so far for something so plain? Was it possible that their order's primary mission was to protect this crumbling stack of parchment and leather? The king gingerly stroked the book's cover and nodded. It is. What is it? Magic? Curian whispered. Again, you think too simply. The king of the caves kneeled before him and looked up from the book. You regaled me with your order's history when we first met, he said. But do you remember anything older? Curian shrugged. Legends? Myths? Stories that have no time, if they happened at all. Then I will let you discover for yourself what it is, said the king. He placed the book in Curian's lap and walked silently to the darkened passage. I will return when you have decided. But do not tarry, for time is short. Then he turned and faded into the shadows of the tunnel. Louise harangued them through breakfast to leave the House of Healing and see the camp. Noman acquiesced first, seeming almost as eager to go as she was once he had made up his mind. He even tried to convince Tobin it might be like the Mercy visits to Abbeford. Although from what he had observed so far, these people needed no help from a few orphaned monks. They stepped out into a cool October day with the fresh smell of rain on the ground. Unlike the plains, the water had quickly sluiced to the lowest point of the canyon and disappeared, leaving the paths muddy but free of large puddles. At this elevation, Tobin thought the dark clouds still hanging overhead looked almost close enough to touch. If it were possible to reach them, would his fingertip lose a deluge? In this place, anything might be possible. He had already seen an impossible column of smoke that morning, except that had now disappeared as cleanly as Curian. As they walked around, his previous day's observations about the camp proved true. It was almost a small village, a permanent settlement. It contained its share of young and old, although every person seemed to have a certain vitality that was missing in Pollingham. A group of children followed them with curiosity, 
darting between tents and houses to snatch glimpses of the strange monks. The elderly left their chores to greet them warmly, and the younger workers, busy with more strenuous tasks, offered words of welcome as they passed. Tobin noticed that most of them still wore swords at their sides, and that a handful of men were always within a few quick strides of the monks. There was trust, but also caution here. They could have walked through the site's entirety in a quarter hour, except that the inhabitants, especially the older ones, kept stopping them. They wanted to know about the monks and to tell their own stories about the king and his camp. Every one of them offered a morsel of food or a cup of tea while they spoke. By the end of the afternoon, Tobin began to wonder if the camp and their order shared similar rules about hospitality. He had never learned how to refuse such sincere offers with grace and dignity, so he accepted each time until his stomach was over full and he walked uncomfortably. Despite their graciousness, it was obvious they had very little. This, more than anything, convinced him that these people were not the vicious criminals the Lord of Asius had described. They were cast-offs from all over Pollingham and the Northland Kingdoms, trying to scratch out a living in hidden exile. That didn't mean there wasn't more going on. For some reason, Evasius felt threatened by them, perhaps only because he thought they had the treasure. He expected they would find out in time, but for now, he knew the people were good and honest. I know nothing about their king, Noman said as they approached the large buildings at the center of camp, but I could live with these people and serve them. And give up the order? Tobin and Reese asked at the same time. If the treasure is here and there is opportunity to serve God by ministering to a community, why could the order not be here? The dean shrugged his shoulders with unusual levity. Or anywhere. Reese leaned close to Tobin and whispered, If we get to vote for Abbott, the dean's prospects are getting shaky. Tobin jabbed him in the ribs. Then you see it? Louise asked with hope in her eyes. The dean looked around him, smiling, nodding almost unconsciously. If only Dean Goodman understood the full weight of his words, said Xander as he stepped out of the large building that looked like a meeting hall. I am happy you have concluded that we are not kidnappers and thieves. They looked at each other, not knowing how to respond. I'm uncertain whether I can tell all that you are in a day, Tobin said, trying to give Xander a taste of his own mystification. Another understatement, Xander said in his enigmatic way, an implied question. Was it part of your studies? Seemed to hang behind his words. He bowed toward Tobin and Reese. My friends, if you would permit me, I would speak with your dean alone. I believe there are some things he is ready to hear that are for him alone. He stretched out an arm to invite the dean into the building. It would be my pleasure, Noman said, stepping inside. Reese was clearly uncomfortable, and Tobin was about to object, but the dean agreed too quickly and was gone. Xander asked Louise to take the boys back to the House of Healing to wait for dinner, and then enter the large, empty hall and shut the vast double doors. Tobin stared at them for several moments, focusing on a large relief carved into the wood. It was a symbol he had seen once before, a symbol that he was told stood for crime and horror, standing against their order, against the rule. Seeing it now in such contrast brought a riot of emotions to his heart. 
the mouth of a cave was on the door, topped with a crown, the signature of the king of the caves. Kurian has finally met the king, and he is full of surprises. Join me next Friday when Kurian discovers more about the object he has been seeking as the treasure of Capric continues. Like I said, no special extra specific content this week, but I really wanted to share my favorite part about this chapter, as it also applies to some of the following ones as well. It might be hard to pick up while you're listening, but during the conversations between Kurian and the king, there's actually more than one dialogue going on. Kurian keeps speaking and asking questions out loud, followed by his own thoughts, doubts, or fears. And when the king answers, he's usually addressing both the external and internal questions. Kurian doesn't notice it, and I've never had a reader comment on it. But to me, it's important. <laughs> it's a rare conversation where you really feel like there's deeper communication happening. And, and occasionally, I've, I've been in situations where I'm having one conversation and the other person is having a completely different conversation just based on where we are at mentally, and that's not a good thing. In this case, it's both the, it's both the mental and the spiritual, or the mental and the emotional side communicating all at once, which is a rarity. And this was just the best way I could think to capture it because it's valuable. That's it for my thoughts. Thanks for listening to those. I'd love to hear if you have thoughts or questions or comments about the story of your own. You can send me a message or leave me a voicemail by going to brandonwilborn.com forward slash contact. That's brand on, not brand off. And Wilborn is as simple as you can make it. W-I-L-B-O-R-N. So brandonwilborn.com forward slash contact. Thanks again for listening to the show. If you're enjoying it, please, please give it a five-star rating and review, as long as those options are available in whatever you're listening on. Then share the show with your fellowship of fantasy fans. That's all for this week. Until next time, Godspeed. The Treasure of Capric is also available in print and ebook formats from all major booksellers. Find a link to your favorite retailer in the show description or go to brandonwilborn.com. This has been The Treasure of Capric, Book One of the King of the Caves, written and narrated by Brandon M. Wilborn. Copyright Brandon M. Wilborn.